I think admitting you're wrong makes the world a little bit more unpredictable. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. This week, Adam Grant changes his mind a lot, and he says you should too. Picture this. You're on I-70 driving across Maryland, and around Frederick, you pull off because you need gas or you got to pee or whatever. Your first impression is probably that this is just another quiet American town, the kind of place where nothing much happens to anybody. But see that big windowless Costco just off the highway? It used to be a truck stop, and that truck stop had a motel, and that motel had a bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And that's where, a few decades ago, Daryl Davis's life changed forever. I was playing music. I, it was my first time playing in this particular bar. That's Daryl in an interview with NPR. And this white gentleman approached me, and he says, uh, I really enjoy your all's music. I thanked him, shook his hand, and he says, you know, uh, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Daryl was taken aback. He asked, where do you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned to play? And the white guy said, I don't know. He must have invented it. Daryl explained that some of Lewis's biggest influences were black musicians. But as far as this guy was concerned, Daryl was the only black guy on the planet who could tickle the keys the way Jerry Lee Lewis did. And that made him want to buy Daryl a drink. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Daryl took a closer look at his drinking partner. The guy had to be in his 40s. How was it possible that he'd never, not one time, sat down and had a drink with a black man? So Daryl asked him, why is that? The white guy didn't respond. And he finally said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And Daryl burst out laughing. He refused to believe it. So the guy got out his wallet, flipped past his credit cards and family photos, pulled something out and handed it to Daryl. It was his KKK membership card. Daryl wasn't laughing anymore. He sat there trying to figure out what to do next. And the thing to do, he decided, was just to keep talking. So they did. And at the end of the night, the Klansman gave Daryl his phone number. He said to give him a call if he ever played the Silver Dollar Lounge again. He wanted to bring his buddies, his fellow Klansmen, to see Daryl perform. After that night, Daryl started to wonder, could I do that again? And that's when Daryl began befriending KKK members in order to open their minds. If you spend five minutes with your worst enemy, it doesn't have to be about race, it could be about anything, abortion, the war in Iraq, global warming, the presidency, any hot topic, you will find that you both have something in common. As you build upon those commonalities, you are forming a relationship. As you build upon that relationship, you're forming a friendship. Daryl has formed more than 200 of those friendships with white supremacists, and all of them, including the guy from the bar, gave up their robes, not because Daryl cajoled or converted them, but because he gave them the opportunity to rethink their racist views. I learned of Daryl's story thanks to a brilliant new book by my guest today, Adam Grant. Adam needs no introduction but I'll give him one anyway. He's an organizational psychologist at Wharton, where he's been the school's top-rated professor for seven years running. He's written two other brilliant bestsellers, Originals and Give and Take. And perhaps the biggest feather at his cap, he's one of our beloved curators here at the Next Big Idea Club. 
His new book is called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. I think of it as a survey of the power of intellectual humility. If you want to open other people's minds, you have to open your own mind first. Adam writes, Daryl is obviously extraordinary, not only in his ability to wage a one-man war on prejudice, but in his inclination to do so. But while that inclination may be singular, the techniques Daryl uses, the willingness to have a frank conversation, the curiosity to ask thoughtful questions, the empathy to find common ground, those tools are available to all of us. As Adam writes of the white supremacists Daryl has befriended, as they realize how little they truly know about other groups and how shallow stereotypes are, they start to think again. Think again. It's easier said than done. We live in a world that celebrates those who cling doggedly to their beliefs and castigates those who change their minds. But in this book, Adam makes a nuanced case for questioning our opinions, checking our egos, and admitting when we're wrong. If we can do that, he says, we'll be on the way to healthy, joyous, more enlightened lives. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome, Adam Grant, to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thanks, Rufus. I'm excited to be here. Well, Adam, I've got to thank you again for the instrumental role you have played in making the Next Big Idea Club possible, which in turn makes this podcast possible. And as some of our listeners know, we go through a rigorous process of surfacing and selecting the very best new books. And you, Adam, along with our friends Susan Cain, Malcolm Gladwell, and Dan Pink, are central to that process. So on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you. I think you've got this a little backward. <laughs> thank you for dreaming up the idea and for inviting us to participate in it. It's, it's always fun to to get to read all the new books that are coming out and then try to identify the ones that people are going to either love or find useful in their lives or maybe both. There's no question that we have good jobs, <laughs> that we're fortunate <laughs> to get to read all these wonderful books. Yeah. I mean, if, in, in if, advance. if we didn't, if our jobs weren't good, it would be our own fault. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, Adam, anyone who knows much about you knows that you are an overachiever. Now, I know that may not be the way you like to describe yourself. It might embarrass you a little bit, but let's do a little embarrassing. Despite the distraction in high school of training to become an all-American springboard diver, I love saying springboard diver, I don't know why, and your side hustle as a magician, you went to Harvard undergrad, got a PhD in organizational psychology, and became the youngest tenured professor at Wharton at 28, and I think the highest rated, not content with your rise in academia, you've published five books in the last eight years, including Give and Take, About the Power of Generosity, Originals, and now the subject of our conversation today, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Um, I have to think, Adam, that the pace of achievement in the first 28 years of your life, and since then, required singular goal-directed focus. So my, my first question to you is, 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 to what extent have your studies in the last decade on subjects like you know, generosity and original thinking and now rethinking been part of a kind of personal project to expand beyond goal achievement? That's an interesting question. I see, it's funny, I see the work that I do less as trying to expand beyond goal achievement 
and more as trying to achieve more meaningful goals. I think one of the things that that really bothered me about diving was <laughs> that ultimately I was aiming for goals that were just about my own learning and excellence. You know, mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. I was trying to improve and gain mastery. And you know, I guess in some ways it helped my team and it was rewarding for my coaches when I did well, but at the end of the day it didn't really matter. And I think that my goals have evolved since then to be much more focused on what can I contribute? How can I have an impact? And the topics I've been studying, I guess, ever since have have revolved around asking, okay, how do we pursue success in a way that doesn't require us to leave our principles behind? Uh, How do we make sure that our ambitions are aligned with our desire to improve the world around us? And so I'm interested in how we can we can build our character in the process of pursuing success and we can succeed in ways that, that benefit others, not just ourselves. I, I love that project. And, you know, there are probably some philosophers and religious leaders out there who would say, um, you know, the, the conclusion that we should be generous and humble, uh, we could have told you that in the first place without all this uh, decades of research. <laughs> well, thanks but, for that, Rufus. <laughs> I feel much better about my career now. No, 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 no. But I mean, it's interesting that that actually, I think this is what's so fascinating to me about your project is that is that really you've done something kind of beautiful, which is to to, to scientifically validate the benefits of living what what most would consider a kind of virtuous life, right? Of, of being kind, creative, humble before the unknown. You know, do you see it that way? I think in some ways, yes. I would say. Yeah, a lot of my work has been dedicated towards showing that you don't have to choose between generosity and excellence. You can actually align those two values. And more recently with Think Again, I've been interested in how humility can uh, can enable us to be smarter thinkers and better learners and wiser decision makers. And so I guess that's taking another virtue and, and showing how it can enhance our success and especially make it more sustainable. I think, though, that the... To me, that that question is not that interesting. <laughs> like, is is it possible that you can you know that you can achieve great things while also aspiring to be a good person? Of course, <laughs> of course, there are always multiple paths to success. I think the much more interesting questions are around how, and that mm-hmm. that for me is where great religious traditions and philosophers tend to leave off. Uh, you know, they encourage us to be generous and humble. They don't tell us that much about how to avoid burning out, uh, mm-hmm, how to maintain right. our confidence while we're, you know, we're striving for humility. And so I think there are a lot of questions around the implementation of these virtues mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Uh, and also the, kind of the, the incorporation of them into a busy life that, for me, are, are mysteries that are worth exploring. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in my imperfect journey towards humility, having children— has been <laughs> has been very effective in in helping me get there, and also I think in my own journey, it's been a critical part of causing me to rethink a lot of assumptions that I had. You've got young kids. Do you think for you that having kids was kind of part of oh, it's, arriving? I mean, it's at hard this? not to be humbled by parenting. Uh, you know, the I, I think for a long time I've you know I've maintained a challenge network of of people who poke holes in my ideas and tell me what I can improve upon. And, 
you know, sometimes it feels like pulling teeth to get people to, to tell you what they really think. You never have that problem with your own children. <laughs> they they give you lots of feedback even when you don't ask for it. And, you know, I, actually our, our daughters have for a few years now done impressions of my TED Talks. I'm Adam Grant, and this is my TED Talk. You know how when you put a frog in cold or warm water, it jumps right out? But when you put it in lukewarm water, it stays in and hangs out there for a while. This is an example of thinking again. P.S. I'm bald. And this was all fascinating, and I hope you will tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) They're they're hilarious, but I also realize how just how ridiculous I I look and sound with some of my Muppet movements, uh, the way that they hold up a mirror for me. And it's such a good prompt for me to say, all right, I I got a lot better at public speaking, but I still have a long way to go. Well, I'm sure she'll she'll be uh, diligently keeping you humble for many years to come. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. So Adam, Phil Tedlock wrote about three different mental modes we tend to fall into preacher, prosecutor, and politician. Can you tell us about those? Well, the simple version is that when you're thinking like a preacher, you believe you've already found the truth and you're trying to proselytize it. When you're in the mindset of a prosecutor, you're trying to prove someone else wrong and win your case. When you're thinking like a politician, you're trying to lobby your campaign for the approval of an audience. And Rufus, my big worry with these three modes of thought Aside from the fact that I'm not a preacher, I didn't go to law school, and I can't stand politics, but I still catch myself slipping into these mindsets every once in a while. That aside, when, when you're preaching and prosecuting, you don't stop to think again because you already know you're right and the other person is wrong. And that can make you too closed-minded. And then when you're politicking, you spend a lot of time telling people what they want to hear but you may not be revisiting what you actually think. Well, I think, I think that's a perfect segue to big idea number one from the book, which is think like a scientist. When people reflect on what it takes to be mentally fit, the first idea that usually comes to mind is intelligence. The smarter you are, the more complex the problems you can solve, and the faster you can solve them. Intelligence is traditionally viewed as the ability to think and learn. Yet in a turbulent world, there's another set of cognitive skills that might matter more. The ability to rethink and unlearn. Rethinking isn't a struggle in every part of our lives. When it comes to our possessions, we update with fervor. We're happy to refresh our wardrobes and renovate our kitchens. But when it comes to our knowledge and opinions, we tend to stick to our guns. We favor the comfort of conviction over the discomfort of doubt, and we let our beliefs get brittle long before our bones. We laugh at people who still use Windows 95, yet we still cling to opinions that we formed in 1995. To rethink our views, it helps to think like a scientist. Thinking like a scientist is a frame of mind, having the humility to know what you don't know and the curiosity to find out more. It requires searching for reasons why you might be wrong, not just for reasons why you must be right, and revising your views based on what you learn. When you're thinking like a scientist, you don't let your ideas become your identity. You listen to ideas that make you think hard, not just the ones that make you feel good. You surround yourself with people who challenge your thought process, not just the ones who agree with your conclusions. And you anchor your identity in mental flexibility rather than foolish consistency. This actually, for me, Adam, in addition to, I mean, this, your book is so useful. 
Um, and uh, I've already applied it to my life, as have many people on our team. Um, but it's also touchingly vulnerable in a number of places. We get a little more of a glimpse at like the journey of Adam Grant. And um, you say that you were so determined to be right as a child that your friends started calling you Mr. Facts. And I got the sense that was not a compliment. Um, <laughs> I thought it was at first. But <laughs> it, 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 then then it, it usually followed, shut up. <laughs> shut up, Mr. Right. Facts. Don't bring me Mr. Facts. I don't want to hear it anymore, Mr. Facts. And... You know, I think, gosh, there, there, were, there were a lot of those moments where I had to grapple with being wrong, too, where it mostly came up when we were trading baseball cards and then, you know, keeping track of our own fantasy sports by, by hand uh, on sheets of paper. And, you know, I, I, I guess I took pride in, you know, in memorizing every player's stats and knowing the value of each card. And every once in a while, they would go and, and look up, you know, the, like the price of a card, or, you know, somebody's batting average seven seasons earlier, and I would be off a little bit. And it, it hurt. I'm like, no, I, I'm supposed to know these things. I, I, that's who I am. I'm Mr. Facts. And I think that, I don't know, some, some of this was probably, it's probably a defense mechanism around being a nerdy kid and not mm -hmm. being liked by everyone. <laughs> Thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, what am I good at? Uh, I'm good at accumulating a lot of information and... Teachers seem to be impressed by that, and mm -hmm. maybe I, if I'm right, uh, I will, you know, I'll stand out in some way. Mm. But there was this very kind of direct social cost. I mean, you said your best friend said he would not talk to you until you admitted that you were wrong. <laughs> so I don't know, I don't know how long that took, Adam. But clearly, this it sounds like this was a kind of crucible period. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I, I, I'd sort of forgotten about it until I was writing the book, and I. I started writing this chapter on the joy of being wrong, and suddenly this memory came flashing back to, I think I was, we we were on the phone talking during a commercial in a Seinfeld episode, and I don't remember what I was wrong about, but I was very obviously wrong, and it was it was something like, I think it was a movie quote, and then my friend went back and watched it and proved me wrong, and I, I guess I couldn't admit it, and he just hung up, the, he hung up the phone on me, and I called him back the next day and, and said, all right, I watched the scene. I was wrong. And I think that was the beginning of a journey to, to start to find joy in discovering that I was wrong because that meant, well, the faster I was to acknowledge I was wrong, the faster I could move toward being right. Well, I, I too, um, had to live with the burden of being right as a child. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can see that burden hasn't left you yet. Uh, well, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a work in progress, Adam. I'm a work in progress. But I was the oldest of three, and just in a household, you, I mean, just having younger siblings, you sort of, you know, you just have accumulated more information. I'll never forget the day I got into an argument with my younger brother about whether the plural of fish was fish or fishes. I was quite certain it was fish. And he and my sister looked it up and discovered that both were right, and they were just jubilant for hours. <laughs> and I realized, I just remember thinking like, gosh, what have I done? You know, these poor, what have I to these poor, wonderful younger siblings. But um, why do you think we have such a tough time admitting that we're wrong? Well, I think the obvious answer is ego, right? That I, if I admit I was wrong, it means I'm not as smart as I thought I was. 
And there's an image challenge associated with that, which is, you know, everybody else is going to find out I'm an idiot. So I don't want to look in the mirror and see that person who's not intelligent. And I don't want to, I don't want other people to see my incompetence. I think there might be some more interesting explanations, though. One of which is, I think admitting you're wrong makes the world a little bit more unpredictable. Mm, yeah. Right. If 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 I was wrong about you know it, an event I experienced, right? like I I misremembered a movie quote, how many other things might I be misremembering? And can I really trust my memory and my instincts and my my thoughts? So I think I think that's a threat to a lot of people. And then there's also a big th- a social threat here that if people find out that you're wrong about something, they might exclude you from their group. Uh, they might stop listening to you. They might not respect you. They might not invite you into the rooms that you want to be in. And you know, I, I don't think anybody wants to be an outcast. So I think it's it's often easier to to justify and rationalize your mistakes than it is to own up to them. And Rufus, I guess that, that goes to, I think, a bigger cultural problem, which is yes, yes. we live in a world that punishes people for being wrong. Yes. I, I think when, when people admit that they're wrong, uh, a lot of times they're, you know, they're vilified or crucified mm-hmm, for it. Mm-hmm. And that attaches stigma to being wrong. That means that you know, admitting you're wrong is a sign of weakness. And you show strength by denying your shortcomings and trying to project certainty and confidence and conviction. And obviously, that's completely backward, but it's, I think it's a, it's a world we live in. Right. And I have to think, I mean, my guess is this would be true internationally, but maybe even more true, perhaps, in, in this country, because uh, we have this reverence for unwavering certainty. You know, we call the president's desk the resolute desk, not the, <laughs> not the like, careful consideration of all options desk. I mean, maybe it should be renamed. Uh, but, <laughs> I love that. Um, but isn't that interesting? I mean, I, I, I don't know that other nations have a resolute desk. Uh, uh, do, you think, do you think there's a peculiar American obsession with kind of unwavering certainty? I wonder, I wonder if it's peculiar. I think the evidence would tell us that the U.S. and some other Western countries as well has a stronger preference for certainty sure. uh, than, you know, than many Eastern cultures, for mm-hmm, example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of what's surprising to me about that is our greatest leaders have been defined not by their consistency, but by their flexibility. I think if we saw Abraham Lincoln today, a lot of people would call him a flip-flopper. Yep, yep. Because he came into the White House convinced that if he tried to abolish slavery, it would permanently tear the union apart. And he changed his mind. Right? He eventually right. decided to go for it. Yeah. And I think if you look at what Lincoln did carefully, I would say I think he stayed true to his values. Mm-hmm. You know, he was interested from day one in trying to to abolish slavery, but he was very flexible in his thinking about what's the right time and what's going to be the most effective policy to make that happen. And I think that's that's maybe how we could rebrand leadership a little bit is to say, look. We want leaders to, to be resolute when it comes to their values. We don't want them to flip-flop on their core principles. Mm-hmm, but when mm-hmm. it comes to their policies, their decisions, their strategies, yep. we, mm-hmm. we need flexibility there. Yep, yep. And it, it sometimes occurred to me that I think that it's particularly in leaders that we want this resoluteness. And, and I wonder if there's something primal there, like wanting mommy and daddy to you know, be this kind of unwavering force of certainty or something, because it's... it's um, uh, I, I've often felt that in my own, you know, limited leadership experiences building businesses, 
that to some degree, the right process is to be contemplative and to rethink and to consider all angles, but often the right communication to project feels like it's more decisive. Um, although having read your book, th that view has evolved. I now think maybe communicating the process more honestly is better. Well, I mean, you've, you've done that as long as I've known you and actually longer, right? I, I'm sure you, you got to the part in chapter five where you realized that the story I told about you in originals could have been in Think Again, uh, yes, about you yes. having the confident humility to, to talk about the reasons that investors should not back your startups. What Adam is referring to here is a story he tells in his book, Originals, about an unusual approach I took in conversations with Disney about buying the last company I co-founded, Babbel, a website for parents. Early in the presentation, I included a slide titled, Five Reasons Why You Should Not Buy Babbel. My logic at the time was that if we led with our weaknesses, we would build trust and they would become more curious about our strengths. It worked. They bought the company. I think that kind of confident humility is what we really need in leaders. And it's something that I think effective leaders have done consistently through the pandemic, mm -hmm. right? Whether, mm -hmm. I, I don't know who your favorite pick would be, whether it's Jacinda Ardern or Adam Silver. But if you look at the leaders who seem to be very de decisive in March of 2020, mm -hmm. when it came to yeah. announcing lockdowns, yeah. they didn't tell us they had all the answers. In fact, they amplified uncertainty, right? They said, we do not understand what this virus is or how it spreads or what it's going to take to keep us safe from it. And so we're going to act swiftly because of all the things we don't know. And then we're going to reserve the right to change our mind as knowledge and science help us evolve. And having the confidence to say, I'm going to act because I don't know, and then I'm going to keep revising my opinion as new information emerges, that's leadership. That's good leadership anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's so nice to see examples of leaders who who are more comfortable with their humility. I, I mean, the examples of like the young Steve Jobs and and the Barry Dillers of the world have always frustrated me. I feel like a, a lot of a lot of people have a desire to have this kind of kind of obnoxious, resolute leader mythology. You know, it's it's interesting, Rufus. I um, <laughs> I cut a chapter from the book that just wasn't quite working. It, it was basically about the idea that, you know, we think of Steve Jobs as a visionary thinker, and mm -hmm. the story mm -hmm. we tell, the myth anyway, is that it was his reality distortion field, his ability to bend the world to his will, that made Apple great. Yeah. And I think if you really study the history of Apple, if Steve Jobs hadn't surrounded himself with people who knew how to change his mind. Yes. that he might have never changed the world. He, you know, he didn't want to make a music player. He insisted, he swore that yes. he wouldn't make a phone. Yes. And it was, you know, it was the team of designers and engineers around him who convinced him to do a lot of rethinking. Uh, I, I ended up scrapping the chapter from the book because it felt a little bit too tactical. But something really interesting happens. Just, this is a week and a half ago now. Uh, I got an email from Ed Catmull out of the blue. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. And uh, I've, I've admired Ed since I first became aware of Pixar. He invented computer animation, <laughs> founded Pixar, led it. And I got this note from him saying he was listening to my book on Audible uh, and going through the, the hardcover in between. And uh, I'm just going to read this to you because I thought it was so interesting. Oh, that's wonderful. And, he, and by the way, he bought your book twice, Adam, which you have to give him some props <laughs> for that, right? That's I, I'm pretty sure that, that somebody sent it to him. Yeah. But, uh, but thank you, Ed, if you're listening. 
Uh, he's such a thoughtful guy and one of the best rethinkers I've ever met. Huh, yeah. And I, I, I thought this was telling. I bet you're dying to know what Ed said, aren't you? Well, stick around. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome back to the show. Adam was just about to share the note Ed Catmull, co-founder of Pixar, sent him after reading Think Again. He said, as I was listening, while on my spinner, a flood of memories came back. I think I worked longer for Steve than anyone else, and I watched him change considerably. But he was always someone who understood viscerally that there's no upside in being wrong. And it, that, that was such an interesting contrast to the, you know, the, the popular portrayal of Steve Jobs. It doesn't mean he wasn't stubborn, mm-hmm. right? But it does mean he was willing to be convinced. And, and Ed said, uh, he said, I believe you have the essence right. He was rethinking all the time, and I got my way two-thirds of the time, either because I convinced him or he gave up and let me do it my way. Interesting. And, and my question there was, yeah, I've heard from so many people that that Ed Catmull brought out the best in Steve Jobs. Yes. That Steve Jobs was kinder, that he was more open-minded, more thoughtful when dealing with Ed than anyone else. And what I'm so curious about, and I'm, I'm reaching out to Ed to find out what his answer is on this, is, is that just because Steve had so much respect for Ed's intellect? Or is it because of the strategies that Ed used to open his mind or some combination of the two? Yes, yes. No, I think this is a part of the Steve Jobs story that is often ignored, which is, again, I think we have this attraction to sort of like the asshole, like just incredibly decisive and certain, you know, startup founder who just drives their their way forward. And and, and the fact that Steve Jobs famously had this view that like people don't know what they want. He, he, was, he was in some sense perceived to be the opposite of the scientific method, right? He was basically like, our, our, our consumers don't know what they're going to want in five years. We have to tell them what they're going to want. Um, but I think, I think there was this evolution of Steve Jobs to some degree in that, in that he started off as, as a, uh, a pretty you know, stubborn, difficult character. But you do get the sense reading about him that, that Pixar, as you say, was this incredible culture of collaboration. And I kind of think that Steve evolved as a leader and, and, and precisely because maybe of Ed Catmull and the Pixar culture. Yeah, I think, I think that culture had a big impact on him from everything I've heard. It seems like, you know, getting kicked out of his own company <laughs> or, you know, nudge that'll, or that'll forced. Do it. That's yeah, right. that, that helped a little bit. <laughs> you know, fa- failing a bunch of times, uh, you know, maturing. But I think one of the things that, that I don't see talked about enough is the, the whole customer thing, I think, is sort of also misrepresented. Mm. So, you know, the, what's the apocryphal Henry Ford line? You know, if I asked my customer what they would have wanted, they would have said, a faster horse. Right, <laughs> right? right. So you can't, sure. you can't talk to the customer. Yeah. 
I think that's a gross oversimplification of what Steve Jobs believed from Mm -hmm. talking with dozens of people who worked with him closely for years. He was very interested in customers' problems, the things that drove them crazy, the things Mm -hmm. that frustrated them. He just didn't trust their instincts about the solution because he thought Mm -hmm. they weren't thinking far enough ahead or they didn't have necessarily the technological expertise to figure it out. And so I think the the Apple view of the world, which is maybe a rethinking for some of us, uh, is is to say, you know what, you want to do a lot of listening to find out what people's pain points are in the world. Mm -hmm. But don't always assume that they have the right solution to their own problems. Mm-hmm. On the subject of inspirational leaders, so there's this first step of acknowledging when we're wrong and rethinking. And then there's this almost you know, a higher level uh, of, of taking joy in being wrong. Can you tell us about Daniel Kahneman and your interaction with him that sparked this thought? Yeah, a few years ago, I went to give a talk on give and take at a conference. And I got on stage, and I looked out in the audience. Danny Kahneman's here. Ah! If I had known that, I would have prepared a different talk. Uh, not, not every day that you have one of the giants of psychology who won a Nobel Prize sitting in your audience listening to you. And, you know, immediately, I'm doing a lot of rethinking in real time. And most of it does not make it into the talk. But uh, afterward... He, I just, I, I walked by leaving the stage and he said, that was wonderful. And it made my day. And then his eyes lit up and he said, I was wrong. And there was something about those sentences that did not mm. compute for me. Hmm. Right? That was wonderful. Yeah. And I was wrong. Do not normally go in the same thought. And I could just, I could see his eyes dancing. He looked like a kid who had just gotten a new toy. And that's also, I mean, Danny is sort of a, a pessimistic uh, guy, right? You don't, you don't see him in, in these moments of exuberance that often. And so I was just really taken aback by it. And it, I just kind of, it, it just stuck in the back of my mind, the image. And eventually, when I, when I started writing this chapter on being wrong, I thought, well, Danny seemed to not only be okay with it, it almost sounds like he got a kick out of it. I've got to find out more. So we sat down for lunch, and I said, you know, it looked to me like your eyes were twinkling, like you were excited about being wrong. And first, he corrected me, and he, he basically told me that no one enjoys being wrong. But yes, he enjoys finding out that he was wrong, because it means now he's less wrong than he was before. And all of a sudden it hit me that this was what hooked me on psychology in the first place. When even, even before college, when I took my first high school psychology course, that there was this rush of excitement when I read a study that contradicted one of my assumptions. Mm, yeah. And I remember that, that being a moment of discovery. And I said, oh, Danny, I completely understand this. And I, I didn't even realize I felt it before. But when I find out I was wrong... It's the, it's the way I know I've learned something. And Danny pushed it a step further, and he said, finding out I was wrong is the only way I'm sure I learned anything. That's wonderful. No, I love, there's something about that exchange that just it really struck a chord with me. Uh, and I think, I, I think it's the next level. <laughs> it's the next level up from where I am in my sort of journey towards humility. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's just to relish and seek out 
wrongness uh, even more avidly. And this, <laughs> I think and you this, might be a glutton for punishment then. Yeah, well, it's well, it's also you know I've often thought that you know masochism is a clever adaptation to a world in which you will experience pain, <laughs> and well, joy, joy in being wrong might be a clever adaptation to a world in which you will discover you're wrong if you're paying attention. Um, but the you know one of my favorite word sequences in your book is confident humility, which you brought up earlier. This has always struck me as one of the great benefits of middle age. You know, because I think earlier in our lives, we often think that humility and confidence are inversely correlated. Yeah. And it, 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 and it turns out to be this great news that, you, that actually, like, if you're really genuinely becoming more confident, you're probably becoming more humble at the same time. And, that, and that's just, a, I think, a beautiful thing. I think so, too. It, I, it's, it's a pattern I kept seeing in my own data that <laughs> confidence and humility didn't correlate that highly. And then I read some studies both in the U.S. and China showing that even narcissists could learn humility. Mm. And they didn't mm. stop believing that they were great, but they started to realize, you know what, along with my strengths, there are weaknesses too. And yeah, I think to your point, I th what confident humility is about for me is, is not lowering your, your self-esteem. It's mm -hmm. having more stable self-esteem, a more secure sense of your own worth and abilities. And that makes you comfortable saying, I don't know, and I was wrong, which, you know, suddenly shifts from being a, you know, sort of an embarrassing moment of revealing your incompetence to a declaration of an opportunity to learn and a chance to model that kind of security <laughs> for other people, which is, you know, I, it's so powerful. You know, anybody who's ever had a mentor or a boss who says, I don't know. Mm. Right, it immediately gives you permission. It creates the psychological safety for you to take a similar risk and say, "Actually, let me let me tell you what I'm not sure about either." And uh, then you don't have to hide your ignorance. You can you can display it freely and then work to overcome it. No, I I, I think that I think that properly defining the word confidence is a great is a beautiful thing because it, it's always struck me that that confidence properly defined is something that feels no need to assert itself. And, and anything that feels a need to assert itself is not confidence. It's actually like, you know, arrogance or braggadocio or something else. Um, but yeah, it's, or at least, you know, at least insecurity. Right, exactly right. Um, well, and you had this great insight in the book that in order to get there, to, to this place of confident humility, we need to modify our attachments detach our present from our past and detach our opinions from our identity. This to me was so interesting. How do we, how do, we do that? I think it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, honestly, I don't, I'm not sure I know. I, I, have some, I have some hunches, hypotheses waiting to be tested. I think mental time travel is, is a valuable skill. It's one we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. And I think it comes in handy here. I used to, uh, I'll, I'll, let's start with detaching your present self from your past self. Mm, yeah. Uh, I used to think that the continuity and identity was important. And there is evidence that you know, if, you, if you feel like you're completely unmoored from who you used to be, that that can be unsettling and it can create a lot of uncertainty. But it's also part of growth. And it gives you some distance from <laughs> the convictions that you were probably too attached to at some point in your life. And so I... I used, to, I used to avoid looking at my past work because I didn't like the feeling of being embarrassed by it. 
And now I take that as a sign, again, that I've learned something, right? When I, when I read a book mm, I wrote. Interesting. Uh, in the past, when I, you know, when I watch a, a TED Talk I've already given, when I listen to an early season podcast episode on work life, I, I'm dissatisfied with all mm-hmm, of it. Mm-hmm. And that dissatisfaction shows me that, if nothing else, my taste has improved. <laughs> even, <laughs> even if I'm not capable of producing better work, I at least I, I have aspirations to mm-hmm. produce better work. But it also doesn't hurt that much if I say, all right, like that, that version of me is not the same exact person as this version of me now. Mm-hmm. Right? It doesn't, my, my old self doesn't reflect on my current self completely. It's a shadow. It's a shadow. I'm looking back at my shadow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to learn from my shadow and uh, make sure I stay ahead of it, uh, I guess, is, you know, is one way to think about it. And that, that to me, that's, that's part of the art of separating present from past self, mm-hmm. is looking back and saying, yeah, that was an earlier version of me. Like, he was pretty good for all the things he didn't know yeah, and yeah, all the yeah. ways that he wasn't yet prepared to take on this problem. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm a little wiser now and I'm going to try to avoid some of the mistakes that he made. I think just having permission to shed our past selves. Like you're, you're, one can almost think of it as a sequence, like a snake shedding skin or something is, 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 is a beautiful thing. And to learn, and of course, there's, there's been, you know, more and more research showing that people actually change throughout their lives much more than we think, um, which is kind of hopeful, I think, right? And, um, but what, what past Adam Grant's have you left behind? Perhaps Mr. Fax is, is at least partially <laughs> left behind? Oh, I don't know. I'm still Mr. Fax. <laughs> Do you know how many times I've resisted the temptation to cite specific studies in this conversation? Oh, I can only imagine. And, and of course, I you know, self-selected into a profession where people get rewarded for doing that, right? Where it's, it's almost a badge of honor right, right. to have you know, all these, these data points at my fingertips. Uh, but I'm, I'm, still, I'm still trying to overcome that impulse. Um, let's see, old versions of me that I have tried to shed... Uh, I've I've definitely tried to get rid of the version of me that felt a need to self-promote. This this goes mm-hmm. back to the point you were making about arrogance and insecurity. Uh, I think, yeah, I think one of the reasons that I ended up going to Harvard was it seemed like sort of a, a straightforward way to never have anyone doubt my intelligence. That'll and, do it. I mean, what? what <laughs> I, I also was really excited about the learning opportunity there. Yeah, and yeah. you know, the like, just the the intellectual energy of the place sucked me in. But there was a part of me that that said, you know what? I, I want the status of going to the school where the smartest students on earth get in, and I don't want to be that person anymore. Like, mm. I, don't, I don't care whether people yeah. think I'm smart or not. Uh, I think they're they're far more important things in life, and. You know, it's funny because I, I, of course, didn't anticipate that ever since making that choice, hmm. every time I've ever made a mistake, there's somebody waiting to say, and you went to Harvard? Really? <laughs> like, that's a Harvard grad for you. But it, it, it's funny because I noticed a couple of places in the book, at least one, where I think you dodged referencing Harvard. You made reference to like raising money for a college, right? And I was like, oh, he's, he's, not, he's choosing not to say Harvard. Um, the, well, well one, one Adam Grant that you might have at least partially left behind is the, is the pleaser. Uh, and uh, you, you, have a, you have a wonderful, I'm working on this too. You have a wonderful section titled The Plight of the People Pleaser. 
And you say, maybe it's my friend dropping me in middle school. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's because my parents got divorced. Whatever the case, in psychology, there's a name for my affliction. It's called agreeableness. Okay, pop quiz, Adam. You're in the back of an Uber. The AC is cranked and you're shivering. Do you say something or do you suffer quietly? I don't think I've ever said something. And I've been in that situation a lot. <laughs> and sometimes it's so cold that my teeth are chattering. And yeah, I just, yeah. it's so its so uncomfortable. It's not my car. Who am I to tell the driver to change the temperature in yeah, their car? Yeah. Uh, it's, it, 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 I just cringe at the thought. And, you know, this, this is a little bit of a paradox for me because if I had a goal in that situation, I would not let the temperature stand in the way of it. But... Because because I'm the passenger along for the ride, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it just it feels like it's it's a violation of social roles, and I have to keep the peace. I have struggled with the same thing. I, I have shivered in the back of an Uber, and um, it's only having built a series of businesses that I come around to thinking, you know, because I used to be totally unwilling to ask for like a, a slice of lime to go with my water. Uh, but then I came around to the view that like as an owner of a business or, or a builder of a business, you want the feedback about how you can make people's, you know, ride more pleasurable. <laughs> you know, oh, so that's maybe, interesting. So right? you're trying to reframe this as if I could be helping the driver yes. with my idiosyncratic temperature request. Yeah, perhaps. All right. I mean, well, certainly if, it, if, if it's something that might reflect in his rating. Yeah, but Rufus, here's the thing. I'm afraid, I think in p- part of the reason that that kind of situation bothers me so much is... I have a member of my family who will go unnamed today to to protect their innocence. But basically, this member of my family went to a funeral, and then afterward, there was you know a, a gathering to grieve. And at a complete stranger's house, just walked up to the wall and adjusted the thermostat. After a funeral, <laughs> who does that? Like, not okay. okay. And okay. seeing those kind of moments, yeah, just yeah. it just I feel like I've been. It's just the the vicarious embarrassment mm-hmm. I feel at yeah. seeing somebody do something like that. I, I think I've and I've overcorrected to the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. Well, I, I I've had somewhat of a similar journey with the agreeableness, and, and really, you know, you know, starting in my twenties, building my first business was a very humbling experience, and it was partly humbling because I was raised to be so polite and agreeable that it was really hard for me to 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 tell people things they didn't want to hear. Um, and I've, I, I've been on a journey, and part of that journey for me has been surrounding myself with people who were far more ornery and truthful. As a mother would put her child in a room with other children with chickenpox back in the day, I thought, like, I, I need some of this directness and non-agreeableness to rub off on me. Uh, and it's been partially successful. Reading your book is, is another step for me in, in becoming more ornery. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm, was that was my goal here, Rufus. Yes, I thought, thank okay, you. I thought how, so. How can I write chapter four to get Rufus to stand up for himself? <laughs> Mission accomplished. But it, it's what's the what's the problem with being too agreeable? And uh, how's your journey with it? Well, in I mean, in, in negotiation research, the problem is literally called agreement bias. Yeah, <laughs> where you, no. you take a deal that's worse than an alternative you have because you're too uncomfortable saying no to the person right in front of you. Uh, and I think that captures more generally what what so many of us who are highly agreeable go through, which is saying yes to be polite in situations where saying no 
would have freed us up to say yes where it could matter a lot more. Uh, and getting sucked into all kinds of situations that we probably shouldn't be in because we're, we're trying to get along <laughs> and maintain harmony. Uh, there's also, I think, there's a real risk, though, that agreeableness also stops people from thinking again. Uh, yes. Agreeableness is a major cause of groupthink. Mm-hmm. Right? It's you know a bunch of people nodding and striving for consensus instead of sharing their dissenting views and their divergent opinions. And there's a team of researchers that I think put this so elegantly when they wrote that it's Kathleen Eisenhardt and her colleagues. They wrote that the absence of conflict is not harmony, it's apathy. And I I think for me that that's been a big catalyst to change on this, to say, okay, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm willing to settle for apathy sitting in the car because I'll get over it in the Uber. (laughs) The freezing temperature is is not going to give me frostbite. I'll survive. It's fine. But if there are situations where the stakes are higher and the decision in front of us really matters, if I stay quiet, I, I've, I've concluded that I don't care. And that's not who I am and that's not who I want to be. Well, you describe in the book the benefits of creating challenge networks. I love this. Um, how do you go about building a challenge network? Well, as, as I was writing Think Again, I, I had a challenge network, which is a group of friends, colleagues, former students who would just eviscerate drafts of each chapter. And I've, I've been doing that ever since I started writing. But I, I went an extra step after I, I crystallized this idea that, you know, I need a system for my challenge network. So I reached out to a bunch of people who have been my most thoughtful critics. And I said, hey, you may not know this, but I consider you a founding member of my challenge network. And then I had to explain what a challenge network was. <laughs> and then after, after explaining it, I said, look, I, I know that I haven't always been receptive to your criticism. Sometimes I've been defensive. Other times I've just been distracted. You know, I'm on a mission and your feedback is 30 degrees off that mission. And so I just sort of, I dismissed it. But you have always pushed me to rethink my assumptions. And I value that. I may not always agree with the feedback, but I always listen to it and it always gets me thinking and rethinking. And I I know that sometimes people hold back on that kind of constructive criticism because they don't want to damage the relationship or they're afraid they're going to hurt my feelings. And I want you to know that my definition of a good relationship is one where you can tell each other the truth without ever questioning how it's going to be taken and where you don't worry about hurting my feelings, you know that whatever you share is, is designed to help me. And you know I know that too. And I said, the only way you can ever hurt my feelings is if you have a suggestion that you think could make me better and you deprive me of the opportunity to learn from it. I've gotten much better feedback ever since I've had those exchanges. Uh, that's, that's wonderful. I also, love the, I also love the phrase in the book, getting hot without getting mad, right? That one can maintain a culture of, of kind of productive conflict. And I loved the story of the Wright brothers and how their dynamic made possible their, their, their achievements, right? They were quite disagreeable at times. At least one of them was. That's right. Uh, and and the, other, the other went along, which I, I, it w- was an eye-opening moment for me. So I, I, by the way, I wish I could take credit for coining that phrase, getting hot without getting mad, but it was 
the Wright brothers mechanic who who made that observation. Right, that right. They had all these feisty debates, mm, but yeah. it was never personal. Uh, and in the language of organizational psychology, they were having task conflict, disagreeing yes. on ideas and decisions without relationship conflict, saying, I hate you. And I, I thought it was so interesting that, you know, Wilbur was known as being exceedingly disagreeable. Uh, like he was, he was the person who went around correcting everyone. And Orville was, was much more agreeable. He was known as you know, kind of gentle and uh, sort of cooperative and accommodating. But with Wilbur, <laughs> and this is true for those of us who are agreeable, and my colleagues Jenny Chapman and Sigal Varsaid have tested it empirically, uh, as an agreeable person, if you join an interaction or a group with disagreeable norms, how do you fit in other than to act disagreeable? And I, 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 in seeing that dynamic, or at least mm, reading about yeah. that dynamic, I wish I could have seen it. I, I suddenly recognized this is one of the things I love about drawing disagreeable people into my challenge network. Yes, yes. Is they make, they make me comfortable speaking my mind, and I don't hold anything back because they can dish it out, and I know they can take it. That's right. That's right. And, but part of what's extraordinary is neither of the Wright brothers ever attended college. Right? But their process was so scientific. These guys were building miniature wind tunnels and testing, you know, different uh, wing shapes, obviously, and studying birds. And, and to me, it really speaks to the power of the scientific method and the availability of the scientific method, even for non for untrained people. Yeah, I mean, I think so often when, you know, when it just. When thinking about the basic premise of Think Again, right, which is that instead of preaching that you're right or prosecuting other people for being wrong or going into politician mode and just trying to tell people what they want to hear, that we ought to think more like scientists and not let our ideas become our identity. I'm not saying you literally have to be like the Wright brothers and <laughs> invest in a bunch of, you know, a bunch of, um, a bunch of machinery to build an airplane. Uh, and run a bunch of science experiments. I'm not even saying you need to own a telescope or a microscope. Right? All I'm saying is we all have a lot of knowledge and a lot of opinions that are not truths. They're just hypotheses. And we ought to be more interested in testing them than we are in verifying them. You know, when you think about the fact that, you know, what is science at the end of the day other than an incredibly convoluted process that we have to go through to shed our biases and maintain a state of humility. I mean, all these like control groups, randomized testing, it, it's kind of like what Churchill said of democracy. It's the worst way of doing things other than every other way that's ever been tried. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you were going to write a three-word biography of the history of science, the three words I would pick would be trial and error. And nowhere in that is truth. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. It's like, hey, we, we tried something. And it didn't work, or we made a mistake, or we discovered we That's were right. wrong, and then we learned something, and then knowledge evolved. And if you could add a fourth word, it might be repeat. <laughs> right? Yes, please. Right? Trial and error and repeat. And repeat, yeah. and there you go. Well, I think that, that is a perfect segue to big idea number two. Open other people's minds. When we debate our friends, family, and colleagues, we tend to think the key to victory is to go into battle armed with airtight logic and rigorous data. But debating is not war. It's more like a dance. Admitting points of convergence doesn't make you weaker. It shows that you're willing to negotiate about what's true, and it motivates the other side to consider your point of view. 
consider the findings of a classic study that examined what expert negotiators do differently. First, they spend more than a third of their planning time looking for areas of agreement, mapping out a series of dance steps that they might be able to take with the other side. Second, they actually present fewer points to back up their case. They don't want to dilute their arguments. Third, they avoid going on offense or defense. Instead, they rely on curiosity, asking questions like, so you don't see any merit in this proposal at all? And fourth, they're not afraid to share their feelings and test their understanding of the other side's feelings. If you approach a debate as a war, there will be winners and losers. If you see it more as a dance, you can begin to choreograph a way forward. You have a better chance of finding a rhythm. In preparation for this conversation, Adam, I sent uh, a number of, uh, of friends a survey. We had, we had uh, 45 people respond. Uh, and, and one of the questions I asked them is, um, have you given up on trying to help other people change their minds in politics? 24% said, yes, it's fruitless. Um, 55% said, I'm discouraged, but I still try now and then. So 80% are, are deeply discouraged about talking with anybody else, basically, about politics. Would you say that part of the problem is that we're going about it wrong? We don't, we don't know how to talk to people. Yeah, I, I think that's a great diagnosis of the problem. I think, you know, mo most of us launch into preaching and prosecuting when we think somebody else is wrong. And, you know, that, that tends to put them on the defensive. Uh, it leads to a fight-or-flight response in most cases, right? So, you know, they'll either attack back or withdraw altogether. And either way, you're not really opening their mind. In fact, you're probably closing it a little bit more. So... I got curious about what does it mean to, to approach a, a political conversation like a scientist. And I think the, the values that at least I was, I was taught in social science are about humility over pride and curiosity over closure. And that means I want to come into a conversation with somebody who has different political views and from the stance of humility say, I, I don't have a clue what exactly they believe. Right? I can't infer just because they're one of 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump in 2020 that I know anything about any of their specific opinions or attitudes or beliefs mm -hmm. or their life experience. And I want to be really curious. Like what, like what a scientist would do when confronting somebody with very different views is say, what an interesting specimen. <laughs> like I can't, that like this is an alien. I can't believe this person thinks so differently and I've got to know more. And Lo and behold, when you go into a conversation with humility and curiosity, other people become more humble and curious too. When we come back, Adam tells me how an ordinary human, maybe even you, can outdebate IBM's latest supercomputer. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. You describe how IBM has a supercomputer that's trying to do for debate what they already did for chess. They fed it 400 million articles, taught it how to form logical arguments, and gave it, or I guess I should say, gave her, since the computer has a female voice, they gave her a sense of humor. She's shockingly good, but still not as good as the best humans. What is it that the best humans do in debate or negotiation that IBM supercomputer can't yet do? What, what the best humans in debate do, and what also expert negotiators, it turns out, do, is they look for common ground before disagreeing, and they ask questions instead of just giving answers. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's remarkable. The, the computer learned from you know, just countless interactions and communications and sources. And I guess most of the store of, of human communication does not involve people with differing opinions looking for common ground and asking questions of one another. Uh, there, there's also a tendency for the supercomputer to, to use too many arguments. Mm which, um, you know, I think has at least two problems associated with it. And I'm, I'm tempted to give you a list of 11 or 12 reasons, but I'll, I'll try to take the evidence seriously. Uh, expert negotiators use fewer reasons than their peers. Uh, and I think they, they do it, one, because of argument dilution. That if you give somebody six or seven reasons, then they're just going to choose the least convincing one, and that becomes the excuse for throwing out your whole argument. And two, when you start to give people more arguments, they become more and more aware that you're trying to persuade them and they feel like maybe they're being manipulated and they don't want to be convinced, so they put their guard up. And that makes you less effective. And so I think the, the message here was that if you're going to talk to somebody who disagrees with you or who's resistant to your perspective, less might be more. Lead with your one or two most convincing arguments or better yet, start by asking them questions about how they arrived at the views they hold. I'm furiously taking notes here, Adam, because I really think that all of this is exceptional marriage counseling. <laughs> it could you know what? Do, yeah. do what I say, not what I do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Adam, if you can get the Red Sox and the Yankees fans to get along, anything is possible in our marriages, in our country, crossing political divides. You tried to do this. What happened? How did it go? Well, I, I worked on this set of experiments with one of our doctoral students, Tim Kundro, and we found a bunch of approaches that didn't work. So one thing we tried was to humanize a fan of the other team. Uh, that was completely ineffective. <laughs> people, people said, yeah, I understand that this is a person, but they, they root for the wrong team, and they're a jerk. Then we tried to highlight a common identity, and we said, hey, Yankees fans, Red Sox fans, you both love baseball. They're like, yeah, but they're the stupid ones who don't have <laughs> good judgment. 
What was effective was getting people to imagine how they themselves could have ended up rooting for the rival team. We just, we said, hey, Yankees fans, if you had grown up in Boston, what team do you think you would cheer for? And once they said Red Sox, they realized, all right, my, my allegiance that I thought was part of my identity is sort of a, an accident of birth, or at least an accident of where my parents happened to move. And, you know, maybe there's more to people than just what team they happen to cheer for. Uh, and they actually showed less hostility toward fans of the opposing team then. And recently we've, we've replicated this effect with people on opposite sides of the gun debate, uh, asking liberals to imagine what attitudes they would hold if they'd grown mm-hmm. up in a hunting family and conservatives to think about how they might feel about guns if they'd been raised in Columbine. And I think, you know, what's, what's different about this from standard perspective-taking advice is in perspective-taking, you're encouraged to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. Mm-hmm. And the further they are from you, the more inaccurate you are. The more, right. the more you just end up throwing darts and guessing. Uh, and you usually create a caricature of the other side, so to speak. Whereas when you imagine your own life circumstances having played out differently and say, okay, who would I be if I was raised in that other city? Or if I was raised in that other kind of family, you start to realize that the, you know, the, the groups that we belong to don't always define us. And there's more to our identity, our values, and our essence than, you know, than, than just one attitude or one policy stance. This attraction to polarities is fascinating to me, which leads me to a question which is particularly high stakes. I'd appreciate it if you'd answer this, Adam, with appropriate seriousness. Is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> There's a psychology professor who uh, did a, a little experiment in one of his classes to illustrate this classic finding. Uh, it's called the minimal group paradigm, uh, which which is the idea that you can make people part of a meaningless group and they'll start to develop pro-group attitudes and they might start to dislike the out-group a little bit. And just to to illustrate how easy this is to do, he pulled his class on, is a hot dog a sandwich? Which I am not sure on. I I think it's not a sandwich. I think it's the wrong shape. But Of course it's a sandwich, Adam. This is a meat product wrapped in bread with a condiment. How could you possibly say that? That's absurd. (laughs) No, I mean, maybe it's a sub, but it's not a sandwich. And people who say sub sandwich, no, that's a sub. That's not a sandwich. A sub is a subset of sandwich. Right. So people, ha- people have yeah. these debates and they get very into it, even though they didn't even realize they had an opinion on it to begin with. And then all of a sudden you belong to a group. You're like, well, I'm the, I'm the anti-sandwich guy. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and you're like, no, 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 I'm the hot dog sandwich person and, and we're smarter than you. And hilariously, it turns out that people will accept less money to make sure that the other side of this debate doesn't get more money than they do. Like, they will sacrifice their own pay to punish the people who are wrong about whether a hot dog is a sandwich. That is extraordinary and concerning about our species. But fortunately, we have tools, many of them provided in your book, for crossing these divides. And I think the tool that will probably be employed most in my own life is motivational interviewing. Can you tell us about this? One of my favorite ideas in psychology. It comes from these great counseling psychologists Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, who were treating addiction patients and seeing a tremendous amount of preaching and prosecuting, 
right? You're, you're a bad person for using drugs. You need to get off that path. Here's how you should lead your life. And, you know, just as, as we've talked about in, you know, in a debate or a negotiation or a marriage, just tended not to work. Uh, so they said, well, it's hard to force somebody to change their own mind. Maybe we'd be better off trying to help them find their own motivation to change their own mind. And they developed this whole philosophy and set of skills around motivational interviewing, which to me is a lot like what a scientist would do. To come into the conversation and say, Rufus, you know, I, I'm hoping that you will change your stance on a given issue. Um, but I don't know, you know, if that's good for you or not. And I also don't know what would motivate you to do that. So let me interview you. Let me ask you some questions and say, hey, let's say, for example, you were very strongly opposed to vaccines. And I have some concerns about you getting COVID. I might say, hey, Rufus, you know, tell me a little bit about your, uh, you know, your, your thoughts on vaccines. What are the factors that would lead you to consider? What are the factors that make you hesitant? And I, I'm trying not to have my own agenda, right? I'm trying to help you achieve your goals. And so I would say, hey, Rufus, you know, I'm, I'm obviously wanting to make sure that you stay healthy here. I don't want you to get COVID. Uh, but I also really just want to understand your views better. So talk to me about the pros and cons. And in asking those questions, what often happens is people, people surface their own ambivalence, mm. right? They will come up with reasons to get the vaccine and reasons why they're reluctant. And then what a, a skilled motivational interviewer will do is, uh, is essentially amplify the change talk, uh, the reasons to consider shifting and say, well, you know, what, what would tip you over the edge? What would lead you to say, yeah, I think the pros of getting the vaccine would probably outweigh the cons. And then they might guide you a little bit to make a plan. But the important thing is they cannot do it with an intent to manipulate you. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Well, this, I think, is a great segue to big idea number three, complexify the world. There's a basic human tendency to seek clarity and closure by simplifying a complex continuum into two categories. Psychologists call it binary bias. An antidote is complexifying showcasing the range of perspectives on a given topic. We might believe we're making progress by discussing a hot-button issue as two sides of a coin, but people are actually more inclined to think again if we present those topics through the many lenses of a prism. It helps to remember that we can fall victim to binary bias with emotions, not only with issues. Just as the spectrum of beliefs on charged topics is much more complex than two extremes, our emotions are often more mixed than we realize. If you come across evidence that you might be wrong about, say, the best path to gun safety, you can simultaneously feel upset by and intrigued with what you've learned. If you feel wronged by someone with a different set of beliefs, you can be simultaneously angry about your past interactions and hopeful about a future relationship. Complexifying can be useful in the workplace, too, encouraging us to ask questions that challenge the status quo. And you can even try it at home. Consider setting aside time every week to assess how your views are evolving or asking your friends and family what they think you should be reconsidering. So, Adam, we live in a world of binaries. Red state versus blue state, Apple versus Android, baseball hat backwards versus forwards. <laughs> Why this desire to reduce complexity down to these simple binaries? Well, the, the psychology term for it is binary bias. And I think it's, it's one of the many heuristics that we use to navigate a confusing and complex world. Let's, let's take the political example. 
if I have to form my own opinion on every single issue that liberals and conservatives differ on, then I'm going to have to do a lot of research and a lot of thinking, and I'm not really sure what the right thing is to do. If I align myself with the party, I follow the party line, I have made a complex task much easier. And then, you know, I can apply the same heuristic when I'm interacting with other people. Like, it's much faster to say, you know, political uh, ally good, political mm-hmm. rival mm-hmm. bad. Climate change would appear to be pretty binary, right? You either believe it's happening or you don't. But you point out that there are, in fact, a wide range of positions on the topic when you dig into it. Yeah, this was a surprise for me, and it was a great moment of complexifying my thoughts. I thought there were climate change believers and deniers, because that's what the media presents. And yet, it, there's a spectrum of at least six different camps at you know at various levels of belief or concern. Right, there are people who are alarmed, who believe that you know that climate change is real, that it's human caused, and it could be very disastrous. Then there are people who are you know less less alarmed. They're concerned. They think climate change, you know, the science is clear. It's being caused by humans, but, you know, we could, we could probably, uh, we can probably get out of this mess. Uh, and then, you know, there are people who are sort of on the fence, and then you move down the other end of the spectrum, and you have people who are a little skeptical and then more doubtful and then completely dismissive is the exact opposite end of the spectrum. And that's only, at least in the U.S., I think about 10% of the population. And yet those, those deniers get more press than scientists. Mm. Uh, And they get obviously a lot more press than the people in the middle of the spectrum who are the majority, but not even discussed, right, (laughs) or or engaged. And I I think the opportunity there is to say, we're we're probably not going to change the minds of the 10% who are in denial of the science, Uh, which, by the way, very few of them are scientists, which makes me skeptical of them. Like, yeah, I walk around thinking that I understand physics uh, even though I'm not a physicist, <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I think they're they're lacking a little bit of intellectual humility there. Uh, but we can reach the people in the middle of the spectrum, mm-hmm, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the majority on the fence. And I think seeing complexity is the first step toward doing that, recognizing, hey, you know what, there are a lot of people who, you know, are not passionately denying climate change, but they're also not taking action to try mm-hmm. to prevent it. My, as it happens, my brother's a climate scientist, and he's he's pointed out that he thinks part of the problem is is the difference in the language that scientists use when talking with each other versus with with others, and and that as a scientist you have to be a hundred percent certain to to state something in black and white, which you kind of never are. So that you know, <laughs> but you you uh, you point out that when scientists communicate their work to each other. They're long on caveats and limitations to their study, but somehow when it gets distilled into a headline, it's presented as much more definitive. So what the layperson hears at the end of the day is, butter is good, butter is bad, now butter is good again. I hope this doesn't change, by the way, Adam, I'm happy with butter is good again. Um, (laughs) But this causes people to distrust science, right? (laughs) Right? So there seems to be a, a problem, perhaps, with not sharing the complexity. Yeah, I... It's 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 the same problem we were talking about earlier with politicians being accused of flip flopping. Yeah, there's the you know the <laughs> the line misattributed to Keynes, which I think is actually Samuelson. When events change, I change my mind. What do you do? Love that line. Yeah, such a good line. Anyway, uh, I think that yeah we we don't do a good job showing our work in science, and I think a lot of times you know especially if if you're worried that the planet is on fire, uh, you know you you feel the urgency to communicate in the most, the most I, I, you feel the urgency to express as much certainty as you can. And 
you know, there, there is a danger that if you start to equivocate and express a lot of doubt that people won't listen to you. But my read of the evidence is unbalanced. People are just as interested in science if you, you know, if you acknowledge some of the caveats and contingencies and say, hey, you know, more research is needed or here are the limitations of this study. Um, here's, you know, here's what it contributes to our understanding. But like all studies, it's incomplete. Uh, you know, people, people become a little bit more a little bit more skeptical of believing any one study's results, but they don't lose their interest in science and they're excited to keep learning. So I think we could do more of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the other reason that we avoid a lot of those nuances is we're afraid that we're going to look like we don't know what we're talking about, right? If I say, mm-hmm. well, you know, mm-hmm. my, my study's conclusions are, you know, sort of preliminary at this point, that people are going to, they're going to st- stop listening to me. <laughs> like this, this guy's not an expert. And yet, my read of the evidence there is that if you're if you are an expert, if your credentials are well established and recognized, expressing doubt makes you more persuasive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because people are surprised to hear experts show uncertainty, and then they pay more attention to the substance of their data and their argument, which is convincing because they happen to know what they're talking about. So I yeah, I think we should be much more open to talking about the drawbacks and, you know, question marks in our data the same way we do in our journals. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to be told I can eat butter and maybe some bread too. (laughs) But I can't help you there, Rufus. This may may make me susceptible to idea cults, uh, uh, which which you write about in the book. Uh, Let's see how many people you can offend, Adam, in 60 seconds. You take down detox diets, the Myers-Briggs personality tool, um, the whole uh, idea that there are three different learning styles, auditory, visual, kinesthetic. Is all of this bunk? You're, you're appealing to my inner prosecutor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I, really, I really want to point out all the flaws with the Myers-Briggs and say yeah. there was a time when it was pretty good and halfway useful, but it's like trying to, to make a case for eight-track players today. Like, why would you not just use an iPod? Right. And I get it. I, I see. Right. They've gotten better. The, the, te- the technology has evolved. Our, our, our science has evolved a lot, and the tool has not kept up. Right. Uh, you know, learning styles, my read of the evidence is that people enjoy learning one way or another, but they're not actually better at learning the, the way they claim they like to learn. And sometimes, in fact, you learn better in the ways that you enjoy less mm. because yeah. the yeah. challenge leads you to be more focused. You know, I think what, what these, and we could go through the others, I'm less knowledgeable on some of them, but what, what some of these fads have in common is I, I think of them as idea cults where mm-hmm. people have been served some intellectual Kool-Aid and they think their job is to proselytize it. Uh, and the moment that you question their idea at all, uh, they, you know, they go into prosecutor mode uh, and they snap out of the preaching that they're normally doing. And I think that prevents them from thinking, right? I've, mm-hmm. I've even seen this mm-hmm. with passionate meditators. Yeah, I have yep. nothing against meditation. I'm not a fan of being judged for not meditating, which right. you know, to, me, to me suggests that someone has not yet experienced the mindfulness fruits of meditation. Uh, and I've had a lot of people come up to me and like, say, like, how could you not meditate? What's wrong with you? And you know, then, then I feel like it's my responsibility to say, well, there are other methods that you know, can produce the same benefits if you care about reducing your stress or pursuing mindfulness. And I, I've then been educated by, <laughs> by, by, I guess, real meditation experts that 
meditation is actually supposed to free you from those kinds of goals at all. And you're not supposed to have a purpose attached to meditating. You just choose to meditate, which I, I thought was interesting. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm on board with that. But, you know, these, these groups have sometimes gotten very defensive when I pointed out evidence that medita- meditation is not a panacea. It doesn't work for every person and every problem. Uh, there are some people for whom it actually seems to intensify intrusive thoughts. And, you know, also, like, you can get all the same benefits from exercise or from reading a great novel that you do from meditating. And, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to, <laughs> to encourage these people to think a little more scientifically uh, instead of evangelizing. And they have not taken it well. And I think when people start to belong to these idea cults, uh, the, the risk is that they outstrip the science and they close their own minds to learning. And ironically, that undermines the success of their movements in the long run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, I, I loved it when you said towards the end of the book that uh, choosing a career isn't like finding a soulmate. It's possible that your ideal job hasn't been invented yet. And it has struck me, you know, when, when we all hear people ask our kids what they want to be when they grow up, I, I, I try to remind them that the great news is we're living in an age where you can do a succession of things, right? You can have many careers. And the choice of, of word, what do you want to be when you grow up, as if your job is your entire identity, seems constraining. It's hard to disagree with that. You know, it's, it's funny because I'm an organizational psychologist and I study work for a living, but I don't think that work should define us. Mm. And it never really occurred to me until I was starting to work on Think Again that when you ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's not acceptable to say, I want to be a good dad or I want to be a curious person. Right? You have to name a job. And I think that's a, that's a peculiarly American phenomenon that kids are pressured to answer the what do you want to be question only in terms of a career. Uh, and I think, yeah, I worry, I worry that, you know, not, not just being asked the question, but the kind of culture that asks that question uh, creates this, this false idea that there's one calling out there waiting to be discovered. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's one dream job that you're supposed to fall in love with. Uh, and I think we, we want to stay open. Uh, and I, I, I feel like I've reinvented my career a couple times recently. I, I thought, at first I thought I was a, you know, a professor. And then I realized, well, you know, some of the work I do as an organizational psychologist lends itself to advising organizations. And then I realized that there was a demand for keynote speaking and then for writing and you know, it's kind of ballooned into where I almost see myself now as, you know, I still see myself as an organizational psychologist and a researcher and a teacher, but I also see myself as an entrepreneur of ideas. Mm, and I think yeah. part of my job and part of my, my purpose in this job is to try to spread the best evidence that I can find and, you know, hope that it at least gets people thinking and rethinking if it doesn't change their, their behavior or their workplaces. And, you know, that, that would have been really hard for me to do if I was locked into one idea about who I am and what my career is. It, it would have been hard to do from the, from the springboard, <laughs> from the diving platform. <laughs> Literally. Um, and, and do you see future chapters in your career in front of you, Adam? Do you think, do you think uh, there, there might be some surprises in your journey? I hope so. I mean, I think part of the, Part of the point of being open to rethinking is to say, I don't know what those are going to look like. Exactly. But I'm curious to find out. And, 
I think that what I've tried to do is I've tried to redefine how I spend my time, not in terms of my goals, but in terms of my values. Yes. And actually, I've tried to redefine success that way, too. I used to mm-hmm. think that success was just achieving your goals. Now I see success more as being able to live your values. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I know I know what my values are. My values are generosity, excellence, learning, integrity, and freedom. Mm. That's nice. Roughly in that order. <laughs> Roughly in that order. And I'm open to all kinds of, you know, of career opportunities and possibilities that would allow me to bring those values into my day-to-day life. That's nice. Yeah. yeah so Rufus, what I, I've, one, of the, one of my favorite things about writing this book is that people are telling me things I should rethink, but they're not doing it as often as I would hope. So you've, you've read the book very carefully. You've spent a lot of time thinking about these ideas, and I hope rethinking some of them. What do you think I should rethink? Hmm. Interesting. Flipping the tables. That's what I do. I guess the, the, the question would be for folks, you know, uh, learning about the advantages of, of acting with generosity or of acting with humility, is it possible to be too analytical about the benefits of certain actions? Yeah, I think there are, there are times when you could be too scientific in your thinking. <laughs> so, there, there are lots of moments in life that require leaps of faith. I think... I still like to look back at those moments with a more scientific lens and say, okay, what did this teach me about my hypotheses or my theory? Uh, you know, that, okay, I took a leap of faith. I ran that experiment. What, what did I learn? Uh, and how might I run it differently next time? But yeah, I, I would worry that people end up in either an analysis paralysis trap if they're, <laughs> if, if they're, they're stuck rethinking all the time and needing science to defend every single choice they make, mm-hmm. or that you know they just end up being too risk averse because they're only making choices that you know that they can back up with data, uh, and I think that that's a risk in and of itself. Right? <laughs> One of the biggest risks you could take in life is to never take a risk because then you don't have a balanced portfolio. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think I think you're onto something here. Well, Adam Grant, thank you for taking time out of your teaching and parenting and springboard diving, if you still do that, and magic tricks to be with us today. It was just so interesting uh, to, to talk with you. Thoroughly enjoyed it as always, Rufus. Thank you. Can't get enough of Adam Grant? Well, we can't blame you for that, which is why if you join the Next Big Idea Club now, you'll get a free copy of Adam's new book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. Download our Next Big Idea app, and you'll also get 12-minute audio summaries of groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. You'll be challenging your assumptions and rethinking your opinions in no time. We promise. Just search for Next Big Idea in your app store. Join us next week for a conversation with Tom Vanderbilt, who says you're never too old to learn new things. He should know. In his 40s, he took up surfing, snowboarding, chess, singing, and juggling, and he lived to tell the tale. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Thank you for supporting them. The clips of Daryl Davis you heard at the top of the show are from All Things Considered. You can learn more about his incredible work at daryldavis.com. 
Special thanks to Adam Grant for being an integral part of my challenge network. He's helped me and the Next Big Idea team rethink and improve upon our mission from day one. Fortunately, he's not the only member of my challenge network. I'm incredibly lucky to work with an extraordinary team that makes this show possible. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kovnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Virginia Wright. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week. Thank you.